Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. I felt a little bad. Um, earlier today, I forgot to bring my pointer up, and I said to Cameron, when, you get it, when we have a little break here, could you go back? And so he ran back and got it right away. And then I said, can you do me one more favor when I get up? Can you go turn the, the fan off? It's so noisy. He got up and did it right away. I feel a little bad, like he's kind of like my servant, you know, <laughs> like Elijah and Elisha or something. Uh, but I want you to know uh, that uh, he's, doing a, he's doing a great job. He's, uh, he's a good example of the young men at our, the college we support, Grace Bible College, is training for ministry. And he's been a joy to have with us. And uh, he's been doing lots of different ministries. Of course, very heavily involved in our youth and children's ministry this summer been going on visitation with me, and uh, I just say that to say two weeks from today, on Labor Day weekend, he's going to be preaching, okay? So if you're not going to be gone, you need to be here and uh, just been, and, and have a chance to enjoy his ministry, and uh, we're looking forward to having Cameron with us until December when his internship ends. Appreciate Kyle and Nancy have been uh, having him stay with them and feeding him and taking care of him and babysitting him and everything else, so thanks. <laughs> thanks, Kyle. If you're like me, if you've attended Brian, you know, for any time at all, uh, you may have had a conversation like this sometime in your life. So what church do you attend? Or in my case, what church are you pastor of? The Brian Bible Church. Oh, Burian Bible Church. <laughs> um, Christy's shaking her head. Yeah, you've had that conversation. The Burian Bible Church. Wow, that's a long way to go to church. No, not the Burian Bible Church. The Berean Bible Church. Berean Bible Church. That's interesting. What is that? What is that name? What does that name mean? Where did you get that name? Anybody ever had a conversation like that with anybody? Okay, good. All right. So this morning, we're going to answer that for you. And if you're visiting with us, and uh, we're so glad you have come to visit. I hope you feel right at home here today. Um, we're also going to, uh, you can understand too, uh, why we chose to call ourselves the Brian Bible Church. I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We're doing a short series for the month of August and for Labor Day on Paul's second missionary journey. So we've, uh, we've been to Philippi, we've been to Thessalonica, and today we're going to Berea. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, uh, Lord, we, have, we, we do not begin our time in your word now. We've already been in your word through the songs, uh, the music, uh, the scriptural thoughts. I think of that last uh, the scripture that was up there and it ends with Selah, Selah. And uh, Father, uh, we rest in that today. It's good to be here. It's good to be in your care, Selah. And so we open your word now and continue to worship by looking at this passage from Acts. May you speak to our hearts. Might we hear your words. May my words not get in the way. And may we go forth uh, today from this place refreshed from having been together in your word today. In Christ's name, amen. So let me put our, our one map up we've been using just, just to keep that in front of you. And by the time this study is over, you'll probably have this kind of maybe memorized. But uh, this is Paul's second missionary journey. His first missionary journey after his salvation was up in this area of, of modern-day Turkey called Asia Minor. And again, I remind you, it's called Asia, Asia Minor. 
um, it's, it's, it's really the, the Near East, the Mid East, and the Far East as part of the Asian continent. And uh, after his first missionary journey in this area here, uh, they came back to Antioch after the Jerusalem Council. And at Antioch is when uh, Paul, they said, let's go back and visit the churches where we've been and encourage them and, and help and strengthen them. And he and Barnabas had a falling out over John Mark, and which was later, of course, resolved with John Mark. But they split and uh, Barnabas and uh, John Mark went to Cyprus down here, this island here. Very large Jewish community where Barnabas was from. And Paul took Silas with them and began this another second missionary journey. They traveled through this area here. And right about in here, as we've seen each week, we've mentioned this, they wanted to go this way. They wanted to go this way. And it just seemed the natural thing to do was expand the ministry in Asia Minor, move up here into Bithynia, up here by the Black Sea, to move down further into this area. But the Holy Spirit wouldn't let them do that. The Holy Spirit said, no, this is not, not, not where you're going to... It was restrained by the Holy Spirit. And so they came to the coast here and had the vision of the man of Macedonia from over here in modern day in, in Greece, northern Greece, Macedonia. It's in the news right now. If you follow international news, there's a lot of uh, protests and so on going on right now because of uh, refugees and so on. And, uh, and, and so Paul responded to that call. They set sail. They went across the water here. And they landed at Philippi. We spent the first lesson in Philippi where they met outside the city because there weren't enough people to have a synagogue in town. They met with the women there and began that work in Philippi. After being in jail, they traveled on to Thessalonica where Pastor Gary uh, spoke uh, last week on Thessalonica. Thessalonica is modern-day Salonika. Up to World War II, there were several hundred thousand Jews in Salonika. It was still a very strong Jewish community. Uh, wiped out uh, during the Holocaust in, in the war. Um, but they went to Salonika, to Thessalonica. And we saw last week, Gary pointed out for us how um, the church there took root. And later on, when Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he commends them for their faith, their love, the, the strength of that ministry. It was a solid ministry, even though he had to leave quickly after a period of time. And so as Paul leaves by night, and we're going to see today, that Paul is going to travel from Thessalonica, right here, about 60 miles inland to Berea. Gary mentioned last week the Ignatian Way goes right across here and head over toward Rome. The coastal route would be along here down to Athens. Berea, modern-day Varea. Uh, Alex Pierce has been there, I believe. Um, I don't know if anybody else has been there or not. Varea, it's there today. It's about 60 miles inland, and it's out of the way. It's off the beaten path, if you will. You have to make a point to go there. Um, and it's not on I-5, okay? And so you'd have to go there. And so Paul, if we look at chapter 17 of Acts and verse 10. As soon as it was night, the brothers, that is in Thessalonica, sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Bereans were more noble character than the Thessalonians. Now, we're going to come back to that. But I wanted to stop here for a moment and talk about this. You know, the question is, we, we emphasize in our church Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. You know, in Galatians, uh, Paul says, just as Peter was the apostle to the circumcision, to the Jews, I was sent to the uncircumcision. And Paul is known as the apostle to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish world, if you will, 
Oftentimes you'll hear me say, and I like to refer to the fact that the Apostle Paul was sent to the Gentile world. Because actually, and so, I mean, I'm going to address this question. Why does he always go to the synagogue? I mean, if he's sent to the Gentile world, why does he get in town? And the first place he goes, we're going to see this pattern, he goes to the synagogue. Why doesn't he go to the marketplace first? Um, he goes to the synagogue. If you go back to, you keep something there in Acts chapter 17, you go back to Acts chapter 9, to Paul's original uh, calling by the Lord to ministry. And in Acts chapter 9, we have the story of, of Saul's conversion. And then in verse 15, so after Saul is saved, he's, he goes to Damascus. Damascus is the oldest uh, continual, continued inhabited city in the Bible. Again, you hear a lot about Damascus in the news today. It goes, it's, a, it's the oldest city that's been continually inhabited in our Bible, in Damascus. Paul goes to Damascus, and while he's there, Ananias, who is called by God to anoint him to ministry, um, uh, in verse 15, the Lord says to Ananias, Go, this man, I don't know if you happen to have a red letter edition of the Bible, there's different opinions on that. I just happen to notice, though, mine's red letter, so the, the suggestion this is the Lord Jesus Christ saying this. Uh, the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So, you know, the emphasis in Paul's ministry is that he is going to be teaching that through, the, through God's grace, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile, Gentile and Jew, come together equally to form the new people of God, the church, the body of Christ. This new people of God is not spiritualized Israel that inherits all Israel's earthly promises. It is a new people of God, the new humanities he calls in Ephesians. This new people of God is made up of Gentiles and Jews. And so he is sent to the Gentile world. He's not sent back to Jerusalem to herald the coming Messianic kingdom. That is on hold. God is doing something brand new. Read Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. And this something new he is doing is to the Gentile world where Jews live as well. And so I want you to remember Paul's initial calling is to the Gentiles, their kingdom, their, their kings, and your fellow Jews. But he's not going to proclaim the, the coming Messianic kingdom. He's not proclaiming the kingdom that is going to come and reign through Jerusalem. He is proclaiming the church, the body of Christ. And we see this in, Acts, in Romans chapter 9 where Paul says, my heart, is, my heart breaks. I would wish myself a curse for my fellow Jews that they would come and embrace the faith of Jesus Christ. And he talks about their, the advantages that they have. So that's why Paul goes to the synagogue. And it's also a very practical reason because when he goes to the synagogue, and I'll go back to chapter 17 of Acts, and I want to refer you back to where Gary was last week just to remind you of this because we can assume the same thing takes place when, when, when Luke tells us that he, just, he goes to the Jewish synagogue. And we can assume that this is the same process that takes place in Acts chapter 17 and verse 2. And we're going to see this throughout the next chapters. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus, I am proclaim, this, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, is the promised Messiah. 
But God is doing something new. So, for, so we see this pattern set. In this, so you take that section from Thessalonica, transferred over to Berea, where Paul has gone. And incidentally, because this is out of the way, somebody of Paul's stature, you know, Paul, Paul remember, Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel to this day is considered one of the greatest rabbis in Jewish history. Paul sat at his feet. He may have been his number one student. He may have been the next one in line to take this role of chief rabbi. He sat at his feet. And so Paul was a distinguished rabbinical scholar. And for a man of Paul's stature to come to a place like Berea would be very unusual. And so it's natural when he comes into the synagogue and sits down, they would know it. They would know who this is. He may have even worn certain colors on his, on, his, on his prayer garbs and so forth, his shawls, that indicate his status. And they would invite him to come and speak, to come in a synagogue service. The scriptures are read just as they invited Jesus to come in the comment on Isaiah. The scriptures are read throughout the year on a, on a schedule, and then they are commented on. And when somebody like, like Saul of Tarsus, uh, Saul of Tarsus, now the Apostle Paul, when he comes into town in the synagogue, you would certainly invite him to come and comment on the scriptures. They weren't used to having this type of, this type of scholar grace their presence. And so he's invited to speak. And what would he do? He would do what he did at Thessalonica. It says there he reasoned. Now, this is the word that we get dialogue from. It's a Greek word that we get the word dialogue from. He dialogued with them, but he did more than that. You know, there's a lot of emphasis today and some controversy when it comes to sharing the gospel and the Christian message. Dialogue is important. Interacting and discussing and listening and, 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 and answering, you know, questions and involving and getting engaged in dialogue with those people you work with, your neighbors, your friends, your relatives who, who, who do not receive Christ, who have not accepted the Christian faith. To, to dialogue, and some of you have been through that process where somebody dialogued with you and, and was willing to, to listen and talk. He dialogued. But at the same time, you'll notice it goes further than that. And there is some controversy today that there are those who think that, the, that our, our, our um, evangelism today should simply be to dialogue, listen, and, and, just, and just be there. That's true. But you know what else he did? He dialogued. He explained to them. He not only dialogued and gave them a chance to talk, and he had talked, he explained to them the scriptures. He explained to them, because you see, in the synagogue, there was a common ground. In the synagogue, there were Jews and Gentiles. We see this throughout Acts, that there were Gentiles, some who were actual proselytes, but they would be called Jews. So when it's identified as God-fearers or Gentiles in the synagogue, these are people who have not converted but they are quite attracted to Judaism. They are attracted to the high moral standards of Judaism compared to the world that they live in. They are attracted to the, to the Old Testament scriptures. And in these synagogues, in these Greek cities, there were a lot of Gentiles there as well. So Paul had an opportunity to fulfill his commission to the Gentile world to speak to Gentiles and Jews. He had an audience that already accepted the Old Testament scriptures as the word of God and as having authority. And he had an audience who were expecting a coming Messiah. So it's the most natural thing in the world to go begin in the synagogue. It makes perfectly good practical sense to begin this ministry in the synagogue, which is what he did. And when he got there, he dialogued with them. 
He explained to them the word of God. And it says he gave evidence. The, the last word there, in, in this, when we go back to um, his, his time in, in, in Thessalonica, and he, 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 he dialogued, reasoned with them, he explained it, and he proved, he proved that Christ had to suffer. He gave evidence. This is a legal term. Uh, this is the area that, the, you know, in the lawyers work with. If, if you were to think today of preparing, if I could almost call this is my lawyer friends here and asked them, and I didn't, I should have. Uh, what would be some ingredients of a good legal brief? What would you, if you're, if you're preparing a brief for a judge, what are the essentials that go into that? That's the word here. It's a legal term. Giving evidence to prove that Christ is who he said he was and this message was true and life hangs in the balance, eternal life here. If you go back for a moment in Acts... To, uh, well, let's go back, go back to the Gospel of John, if you will. Just go back a few pages. Next, the book just before this is John. Go back to John chapter 19. What, what scriptures did he use? They only had the Old Testament. What, what did he do? Well, listen, the apostles did what, what, what we are told um, in, the, in the Gospels. The Lord did and the apostles did there. You go back to John chapter 19. And in verse 36, John comments, the apostle John, after the... Christ's crucifixion, or during his crucifixion, and just as he died, it says in verse 36, These things happened so the scripture would be fulfilled. Quote, Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, quote, from Zechariah, one of the last Old Testament books, They will look on the one they have pierced. This is an example of Old Testament passages that looking back and, and, and now in, in the context of Jesus having died and, and suffered and rose again and being ascended to the Father, that now these things begin to, to fall into place. This, this, they didn't see this. None of the rabbis, there is no significant rabbinical teaching. There is one sort of obscure commentary called the Targum that suggests there were going to be two messiahs, one to reign and one to suffer, because you have passages in the Old Testament like Isaiah 53, uh, make a note of that. Go home and read Isaiah 53, where, is it, where he talks clearly about the suffering servant of God who will be, who will be wounded and, and, and suffer and, and bear our sins, crushed by God, carrying our iniquities. Who is that? Who is it? The, the standard response from the rabbis was, it's Israel. Um, the standard prophetic response from the New Testament perspective is, no, it's Christ. Psalm 22 and many, many other Messianic psalms that, that describe the conditions of someone suffering in the cross of uh, uh, cross crucifixion, for example. There are these Old Testament passages. You also see the Lord Jesus Christ. Go back one more book. Go back to Luke. You're in John. Just go back a few pages to Luke chapter 24. Go back to Luke chapter 24 and verse 25. When the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Emmaus as he, as he is resurrected and they do not recognize who he is and he's walking along with them and he's teaching and he's preaching and he says to them, how foolish you are, verse 25, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? So the Lord's preaching and the apostles preaching and we can see as 
the Apostle Paul, back in Acts chapter 17, what he's doing is he's going to the Old Testament scriptures and he's showing them from Old Testament scriptures in the synagogue, he's showing them that the Christ, the Messiah, yes, we thought he was coming to reign, but we, we understand now and we see this now that we understand this. He had to suffer. He had to die. He had to pay for sins and he had to resurrect just as was spoken in the Old Testament scriptures. This is what he's doing. He's, he's reasoning. He's explaining. He's proving. He's trying to persuade them. And friends, there, there, there comes a point in, in, our, in our sharing the gospel, there does come the point of persuasion. It's important. This is life and death. This is important. And there comes that point of offering clearly the gospel message, the persuasion that, yes, this, this is worth not only considering, but it's worth your making a decision because Christ died for you paid for your sins, rose from the dead, and offers you forgiveness for sins and eternal life and being part of his family, the church, the body of Christ, and having the hope of heaven and eternity. So we see the response here. Now we notice in Thessalonica, many of the leaders in the synagogue did not accept it, but many people did. And when he comes to Berea, the response in verse 11, Now, the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. I want to stop there. Remember, as Gary pointed out last week, later on we see the Thessalonians highly commended for their faith and their love. He's talking about the leadership in the synagogue. That, that the leaders in Berea were more noble. They were more noble. Why? They received the message with great eagerness. They examined the Scriptures, the legal term there. They examine them as a lawyer would to see if what Paul said was true. This is why when our church started back in 1964 and we had people but no name and we had to choose a name. I was in junior high at the time. I wasn't a part of that process, but some of you were. And um, the name was chosen. And the name was chosen because the thought was that if, if this could be the, the standard that we would always hold at our church, this would be very good. That we are people who are willing to go to the Scriptures with eagerness to look at them and examine them and to see if what the Scripture says is true. Not what people say. Not even you know, what the pastor says. You, you know, what I say, I'm interpreting. I'm helping understand. But ultimately, it's the Scriptures it's the scriptures that are our authority. And if I say something that does not fit with the scriptures, the scriptures take precedence for the pastors and teachers as well. This is why we chose this name. They were more noble. This is an interesting word. The word eugenos, eugenos here, is a word we get eugenics from, which uh, the study of trying to improve humanity, if you will. And that's why it comes across as noble, because it is the Greek word for Noble or high birth, high standing, uh, upper crust, you might say. The, the in, in, indication here, the implication is not that these were wealthier people or people of higher. No, the, the idea is when it came to the scriptures, they were willing to be people who, who took a step up and went up a notch higher. And rather than just simply say, Paul, that's wrong. That doesn't go with our tradition. That doesn't fit. This is trouble. Get out of here. This is dangerous doctrine and so forth and so on. No, what they probably did. And in the, in the synagogue, what would happen is 
they would come back after work every evening. The, the men, okay, this is the way it was culturally. Um, the men would come back every evening, and the rabbi and the leaders of the synagogue would gather, and they would unfold the scrolls because they didn't have the scrolls in their homes. They're, they're quite bulky and big. They would get them out from behind the ark in the synagogue. They would bring them out. They would unfold them. And we get the impression from this passage they would come every day and look at these scriptures and see what Paul was saying. They would go back to Isaiah. They would go back to Zechariah. They would go back to Psalms. And they would consider that. They would examine it. They would ask him questions. They would challenge him. They would push him. And they had this, this, this dialogue. They had explaining. They had legal examination, if you will, as you would in a court case. And their hearts were open. And so I just want to remind you what, what stood out about the Bereans. They received the word with eager. They were eager to have a man like Saul, Paul, come and talk to them from the word of God. They were eager for that. They were eager to hear God's word. They were willing to, to, to dialogue and discuss. They were willing to even examine from a, from a you know, many of the, in the, in, the old, in the New Testament, you'll find the Pharisees referred to as lawyers. It's because they were specialists in the Jewish law. And they would look at it and they would compare and talk and examine and argue and go back and forth. And it, and it says they were willing to do this. It doesn't say they all believed. It doesn't say they all embraced it. But at least they were willing to use the scriptures and not toss Paul out because of what he was saying. They were willing to go to the scriptures and see if what he said was true. They examined them. And friends, the word of God became their authority as they considered Paul's message to see, and, and, and the, the literal translation of this really is, when it says here, to see if these things, I think I learned in the King James, to see if these things uh, be, sold, be sold, and it says here, to see if what Paul said was true. It really is to see if these things hold truth. We might say, do they hold water? Do they hold truth? Is it true? And then verse 12, what's the result? The result of Berea. Notice this. Many of the Jews believed. Now, in, in Thessalonica, there was a response as well. And in Thessalonica, some of, you notice in verse 4, some of the Jews responded. Some. At Berea, many. Not all. But many. Because they were willing to go to the scriptures and, 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 and examine and test and consider. They were eager. They were open. And, and many of them became believers. And now notice this also. This is interesting. As did also a number of prominent Greek women. This, this shows up again as the Thessalonica. Um, the prominent women and women were responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's interesting. One of the accusations against Christianity in, in the early world was it's a religion for women and slaves. Um, it's because of the... Because of the 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 uh, radical nature of this of what is being preached that, that there is equality in the church the body of Christ there's no longer Jew or Gentile free or slave male or female there is an equality here in the body of Christ where all regardless of male or female regardless if they're a slave or an owner regardless if they're a Jew or a Gentile they are welcome and equal in the body of Christ and people responded and many of the prominent Greek women again responded but then also notice the NIV says and many Greek men that's the exact same phrase that's used in Thessalonica 
where Gary pointed out last week, not a few of the prominent women. And I was just, you know, you could, yeah, not a few, meaning a lot. And here it says, not a few of the men came as well. So the results were actually similar to Thessalonica. Synagogue leaders, Jews from the synagogue, prominent Greek women, and men. Then I think the idea here is that the, the many would be the Jewish people in the synagogue, the, the, the non-Jews, the Gentiles, and the prominent women. And we have here the genesis or the beginning of a new church at Berea. Well, the rest of the story, and we'll just, kind of just read it. What happens, though, uh, verse 13, when the Jews in Thessalonica, that is, again, the leaders. You know, when you see this term in the New Testament, the Jews, the Jews, certainly you understand. It's not all Jews. It's, it's the leaders, certain element. All the apostles were Jew. Paul was a Jew. All the early believers at the church, thousands of people in Jerusalem were Jews. Jesus was a Jew. So, you know, use your head now when you see that and understand what it's saying. The leaders came down who were opposed to them from Thessalonica. They learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea. They went there too, agitating the crowd, stirring him up. And the brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast. But notice, Silas and Timothy stay at Berea. And Silas and Timothy stayed there and helped establish this work to continue to teach, to continue to go to the synagogue, to continue to preach the word of God. Trouble again. Paul has to leave town, but the ministry goes on. We are seeing a pattern here in Acts now that's going to take us through chapter 24 of Paul, of Paul going to cities, establishing churches, going to synagogue, opening scriptures, arguing, debating, dialogue, explaining, inviting, persuading, and then moving on. Now, next week, we're going to be at Corinth. And it's going to be a little different story there. I hope you can come next week as we continue. And I'd encourage you to read uh, through uh, chapter 17 and 18. So in conclusion, you notice um, Cameron said we're going to get out at 12 o'clock today. Okay, so I have to hurry up here because we're going with the games at one. We're going to have our tailgating out here. Um, what's that? Oh, I thank you. I have an hour trainer says. Thank you. Man, alive. <laughs> That's what you're here for, trainer. Good. Okay, I'll slow down then. Anyway, we're going to have hot dogs out here in the, in the park. Um, incidentally, it was brought to my attention. How come, how come guys couldn't bring their daughters? Several guys have said, I, we've got daughters and they want to go to the game. And we said men and their sons. Um, you know what? We never discussed that. I'm sorry. Um, that will certainly be in our agenda for next time <laughs> um, because um, it was a men's event. And we all went over to say, bring your, bring your sons too. Um, good point. Well taken. Uh, I stand corrected. We will discuss that, okay? <laughs> but Pastor Gary's in charge. It's not me. So anyway, <clears throat> whatever it's worth. What does it mean to be a church in the spirit of the Bereans? What does it mean? Number one, approach the word with eagerness. I hope when you come to church, and I'm glad you're here today, you may be out here a habit. You know what I say? Hallelujah. Amen. It's a good habit. It's a good habit, families, for your children. It's a good habit. The young people sitting here, God bless you. Uh, it's encouragement. People comment all the time. It's so good to see young people here in the church. It's a good habit. And I hope you come with some eagerness to learn from God's Word and apply it to your life. We have the responsibility, secondly, to come with eagerness. And secondly, we have the responsibility to use Scripture 
And, as, you know, if I, if I remember at the point where the Scripture is no longer the touchstone for my authority, it's time for a new pastor. Because this is, this is our final, this is in, our, in the Christian Reformation tradition, this is our final authority for faith, what we believe, and practice, what we do. My responsibility, our teacher's responsibility, our elder's responsibility is to use the word of God to give direction and understanding. It is our final authority in faith and practice. And if that, is ne- if that ever becomes the case, we're in this pulpit. And this is why we emphasize the preaching of the Bible in this pulpit in our classrooms. It's time to change the name of our church. Because that's why we chose that name. And I want to encourage you, come with some eagerness. Come willing to learn and to grow. Take responsibility. Go home and read the Bible. You, you can't survive on one meal a week. You can't survive on one sermon a week spiritually to, to grow. Go home and read it. Consider it. Don't be afraid ever. Don't ever be afraid to ask questions. I tell our young people in our Bible instruction class, our confirmation class, we still have a two-year Bible instruction class for our teenagers because we're committed to that, two years. And I tell them, if you, I don't know where God's going to take you. And I'll tell you again, for those that have been through class, if you ever end up in a church, wherever you are, and someone says to you, don't you dare question the pastor, uh, you're in the wrong church. Now, respect, yes. Respect for authority, yes. But if the pastor is not using the Scripture as his touchstone and and the pastor is not willing to interact with you and discuss and explain, you're in the wrong church. Uh, This pastor is willing to do this. Our youth pastor, Pastor Gary, our intern, Susie, we're willing to do this. Uh, Don't ever be afraid to ask questions. We have a commitment to teach the Word. Yes, to dialogue, but also to explain, to examine, and to persuade. And we make no apology for that. This is our commitment. We're looking forward to a new year. Our church calendar year begins after Labor Day. Uh, we're taking a little, just a one-month break from Sunday school, but we have a very serious and strong commitment to Sunday school. I get asked quite often, we ever thought about changing our worship time? Yes, I admit 10 or 10.30 might be a, a better time on Sunday in our culture today. But it would not allow us to do Sunday school the way we do it. And we are committed to it. That's who we are. And we are very committed to having your children and your young people and you have an opportunity to come to engage, ask questions, learn God's word, examine the scriptures. We are committed to that. We are committed Wednesday night to our Pioneer Clubs and our Awana ministry. Very committed. It takes a lot of resources. We're committed to our youth program. We're committed to our children's church. Uh, we're committed to open this church up to Bible study fellowship every Tuesday night because we, because we believe in what they're doing. Um, we are committed to teaching. It's a commitment that is worth holding forth. I pray that we will always be able to say uh, with humbleness, yes, uh, we are Bereans. Because we are willing that this this word become our touchstone for faith, what we believe, and practice what we do. And that's very important. And you have a responsibility, as much as I do, to use this word to that end. Come and close the service in our final hymn, guys. And thanks again for your your service and your work in, in leading worship today.
As we leave today, I just want to remind you, you know, I've talked about the importance of examining Scripture, but please don't forget the application. Um, it was past week. It's been a hard week, uh, you know, for the patents. It breaks our heart um, to be there with, with Kathy, who was here last Sunday, right here. Um, it's hard. But I want to assure you, as I've been through this many times as pastor, uh, there's no fear. We're not afraid. Kathy's not afraid. Jeff and Alex are not afraid. Sorrow, hurt, yes. But, you know, when we go there, and, and I go on your behalf as pastor, what do I have to offer? I'm there to offer reminders from God's word. And words that we've studied like be anxious for nothing, but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds. My peace I leave you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Selah. That, this, is where, this is where it really, this is where it's important, friends. It's important where you go this week whether it's in a hospital, in your apartment complex, in your neighborhood, on your job, with your family, it's important that we live what we believe. And we are not afraid because of what God has assured us in his word. I'd like you to bow in prayer as we close the service. My benediction today, I'm just going to read you. We have a great church library. I use it all the time. I'm going to read you from NIV application commentary. Ajith Fernando. There is an urgent need then to lead our people to discover what Oleta Wald has called the joy of discovery in Bible study. And it is indeed a great joy to discover God's truth through personal study of the word. We need, we need a new generation of Christian leaders who will first of all set apart time to do this for themselves. They will then communicate with enthusiasm for Bible study to those they lead, they will help raise up a new crop of Berean Christians.